Good morning. How are we feeling today? Feeling all right? Good. There's, there's a lot of like junk going around, you know, like physically, like COVID-y kind of cold and allergy and stuff. So uh, praying for all your all's health. Keep your hands clean. Tis the season. Um, if you need a Bible, we want to get one put in your hands so we can get into the Word of God for today. Guys, it's uh, just our heart to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You know what I'm saying? We want you guys to know not only what you believe, but why you believe it and how to be able to defend it. I had someone yesterday, I was down at the Dunawake Jamboree, and a guy was like, well, I was like uh, sharing the gospel with him a little bit. He was talking about church and, and all he says, well, and I said, well, you know, the thing is, and I started talking about Jesus, and he was like, well, you know, hey, that's, that's where I have the problem. Now, God, I believe in, but, you know, I just, I've got a problem. And I was like, well, what's the problem? And he says, well, here's the thing. The Bible says, God said, you shall have no other gods before me, right? And I said, yeah, that's what, that's what he said. And he said, well, then Jesus comes along and says, well, you need me too. How do you reconcile that? I said, well, it's real simple. Jesus is God. You know, guys, I just, you just need to know that. You know, the Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, uh, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You know, Jesus is God. There's no, there's no problem there. There's no conflict there. It correlates perfectly. Jesus is our great God and Savior. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn in them to the book of Isaiah as we continue in our journey, chopping chapters down, verses, uh, chapters 19 and 20 today, in a message that I have entitled, Devastated, Disoriented, and Delivered. So with that, let's, uh, let's open our hearts to the Lord. Father, we just thank you again for uh, your goodness. Surely you are good and greatly to be praised. And it's our heart's desire to honor you, Lord, in this place. And so, God, I pray that you open our hearts, you open our minds, God, and that you would just give us ears to hear what you would say to us. And, God, that we would have the desire, the disposition to want to respond appropriately, God, that we would be doers of your word for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say... Amen. Guys, we have been on this sort of rinse and repeat cycle for a few weeks, and, and just to go ahead and give you the forewarning, we've got a couple more weeks still yet to go, but God's simply making it clear that no nation, no people, no one uh, will be exempt from his judgment. Uh, it's interesting to me that so many people have this mentality that if they don't believe something, then it follows suit that it's just not true. And so we have this newfound, for these newfound kind of phrases, you know, speak your truth. But what's your truth? As if truth is something that can be adjusted to fit personal perspective. Evidently, uh, we as a society need a refresher course in the fact that truth is not relative. Uh, it is not subjective. It is not subject to uh, individual opinion. But truth is objective, uh, meaning it's unbiased, it's impartial. It is factual. As the saying goes, there's, there's two sides to every story, but there's only one side to the facts. And simply not believing something doesn't remove us from the accountability, from the reality that it bears upon us. And we talk about this from time to time. It's like trying to deny the truth of gravity or the truth of velocity. You don't have to believe that gravity is real, but if you step off a building, you're going to hit the ground nonetheless. 
You know, you don't have to believe in velocity, but you hit a wall going 100 miles an hour, it's going to kill you. And on and on we could go with illustrations of the simple fact that it doesn't matter if you believe it or not, truth will bear its weight upon you. And so too with the truth of God's word. And the fact that we will all be subject to his judgment. And either we bear it or we stand by faith in Christ who bore it for us. And guys, it just doesn't matter I say with all due respect, it just doesn't matter if you believe that or not. That's the truth. Jesus is our only refuge. He is our only righteousness before God. But when God takes the time to isolate and inform a nation, uh, or should I say nation after nation, the point becomes pretty clear. There are none who are exempt from being accountable to him. And not only ultimately, not only eternally, but even presently, historically, God deals with societies right where they're at, okay? Now, some of the fingerprints of the judgment of God uh, upon a nation or upon a society include, but are not limited to, uh, toppling idolatry, uh, destroying the economy, uh, leadership moving foolishly, acting uh, in incompetency, okay? And so uh, with that, let's turn our attention uh, to Egypt beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. Uh, Isaiah writes, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift uh, cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. And I will set Egyptians against Egyptians, and everyone will fight against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Well, family, I'll say it again. It never ceases to amaze me how right on time God's word is and how these passages that we have been studying are so incredibly relevant to our nation currently. It's almost, I mean, like history moves in cycles. It's almost like one generation really never learns from the previous. Previous, not previous. It's almost as though times and cultures may change, but the human heart remains the same. It's almost exactly like the Bible says. That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. What do you think of that? But chapter 19 of the book of Isaiah is really quite fascinating to me because in it the Lord speaks against Egypt on the one hand and then he speaks for Egypt on the other. 
He says that he will devastate Egypt, he will disorient Egypt, and then he will deliver Egypt. And guys, you don't have to be a history buff to know that Egypt in the ancient world uh, was a significant empire on the world stage, one of the oldest nations in the world. Uh, In fact, uh, those of you who are familiar with your Bibles would recognize you realize that the nation of Israel was essentially born in and out of Egypt. Uh, Jacob went into Egypt with about 70 members of his family, and 400 years later, they came out somewhere to the tune of 2 million people, the nation of Israel. Uh, But Egypt was well established as a nation long before that. You remember Abraham had dealings with, he had fled into the nation of Egypt. And, you know, being seated directly south of Israel, they had constant dealings with one another. There were times that um, uh, Egypt was an enemy of Israel. There were other times that they would be a refuge for Israel. Uh, Sometimes they would offer tempting but ungodly alliances to Israel. But here in chapter 19, God speaks to exactly how he's going to both devastate and then deliver Egypt. And the first thing that he brings into focus for us here in these first few verses is the idolatry of Egypt. Now, uh, the fact that he was going to demonstrate the uh, utter powerlessness and render uh, as nothing the gods, lowercase g, uh, of Egypt. Guys, I'm not sure that there is a nation historically that was steeped more into idolatry than was uh, the nation of Egypt. Now, perhaps Babylon, since Babylon was kind of the seat of idolatry, but the Egyptians, guys, they were effectively deifying about every kind of creature there was. And you see this, don't you, in these ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics and all, how they worshiped dogs, they worshiped cats, uh, they worshiped alligators and scarabs, you know, those little beetle-like things. Uh, They had hippos, they worshiped fish, uh, various birds. I mean, they had gods for virtually every conceivable scenario. Actually, there were over 2,000 gods in the Egyptian pantheon. I mean, they worshiped snakes, they worshiped frogs, they worshiped lizards. I mean, on and on it goes. And you could appropriately and accurately apply kind of layer over the top of the history of ancient Egypt, Romans chapter 1 verses 22 through 25. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than create the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And God was about to put on display the things that they worshipped as gods, uh, the fact that they weren't at all gods and were absolutely powerless to help them. Listen, God wants the world to know that there is only one God and he is the only God with whom we have to do. And he has absolutely no problem knocking down or showing the ineptness of those things that we have elevated in our hearts to the place where he belongs 
in our lives. So that if you're looking to, if you're leaning on, if you're trusting in anything or anyone uh, other than Jesus Christ to be your help, to be your strength in time of need, listen to me, don't be surprised when things come to such a place of devastation in your life that you are forced to concede that that person or that program or that place is truly powerless to solve your problems. God loves you enough to bring you to the end of hoping in or looking to anything or anyone other than him. To realize, to recognize that it's in Christ that we find our strength. It's in Christ that we find our peace, our comfort, our help, our healing, our hope. He is the one we look to. He is the one in whom we trust to meet our every need. As Paul told the Colossians, for in him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Notice this, and you are complete in him. You guys ever wonder why BC, before you came to Christ, there was this giant gaping hole in your heart. There was a sense of emptiness, and no matter what you did, you tried to fill it with pleasure. You tried to fill it with relationships. You tried to fill it with money or whatever the case may be, but it was always like a temporary fix to a permanent problem. That's because you, outside of Christ, you are incomplete, okay? You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Amen? Amen. Egypt was elevating about everything to the status that only God belongs in. And he was going to address that. And as you well know, it wouldn't be the first time that he would do that. Guys, believe me when I tell you that when God delivered how many of you have heard of that, that book? Um, what's it called? Oh, yeah. Exodus. You heard of that one? How many of you? Quick show of hand there. The book, the, the Exodus. Okay. Okay. Um, and you know, believe me when I tell you that when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt through that series, you know, the 10 plagues and all, they were not just random plagues kind of tossed out there. Uh, just going and going until finally the Pharaoh broke. No, these were specific, intentional assaults and attacks upon the various gods that Egypt worshipped. The god uh, Happy, if I say his name right, H-A-P-I, was the personification of the spirit of the Nile. Uh, Hnum, K-H-N-U-M, uh, was the guardian of the Nile. Osiris was believed to have the Nile River as his bloodstream, and God would topple each of them. He would knock over each of them when he turned the waters of the Nile to blood. And guys, this was the case with each of the plagues, uh, the frogs, the, 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 uh, the plague upon the livestock, the boils, the hail, the swarms of insects, the locusts, Ra, the sun god, was shown to be powerless when uh, God brought three days of darkness upon the land of Egypt. Each plague, the death of the firstborn, was God waging war, was showing the gods of Egypt as powerless to protect them. And here, God says, I'm going to do it again. Okay? 
Now what else will God do here? Did you see it in verse two? I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Wait, are you telling me that civil unrest, a nation divided against itself, can be a sign of God's judgment upon it? Uh, You bet it can. And history records well the division of the Egyptian dynasty, the civil wars that would break out between them. And he says, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. Translation, God is going to knock the wind, the ruach, the breath. He's going to knock the wind out of Egypt as a nation. Uh, I will destroy their counsel. They will consult idols, charmers, mediums, and sorcerers. And we've spoken on this before, you guys. We'll see it again before the chapter is finished. When a nation is under the judgment of God, it is not uncommon that he will remove or he will destroy sound counsel, and rather than wise rulers, foolish leaders are put in place. And rather than making solid decisions, they surround themselves with incompetent individuals. He mentions charmers, uh, mediums, uh, those related to the occult and such, to counsel them, to have positions of authority uh, alongside them and all. And I I, I was thinking about it, you know, I was looking up this... uh, uh, Dimitri, was his last name? Doc, Doc, I don't remember his last name. I'd probably not be a, but he is the, the man that, uh, uh, the doctor that Biden appointed to be his advisor for monkeypox. And uh, if, you, if you see any pictures of him on social media, he's always, shouldn't say always, but commonly brandishing the pentagram. He'll have a harness with a pentagram on it. He has the pentagram tattooed over his, uh, I believe it's over his heart on the left side. He has a hat. He's always going, you know, he's got these weird, he's, is he a Satanist? I don't know, but he has an, a, a, an affinity and affection for satanic imagery to say the least. But these are the guys that he's putting in office to advise him, you see. Egypt was renowned for its class of wise men. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 30 tells us. But God was going to dumbfound them, uh, leave them unable to cope with the judgment that would befall them, and, and give them into the hand of a cruel master to rule over them. Now this is probably a reference to uh, the king of Assyria, But guys, here's another fingerprint of God's judgment upon a nation. Number one, he'll remove competent leaders, okay? I will destroy their counsel. Uh, Number two, he will place over them cruel and oppressive leaders that leave the nation languishing in oppression and subjugation and harassment. What, you mean like shutting down an entire economy, making it a crime to open your business and feed your family and mandating various measures that further divide society? It was something like that. Cruel and oppressive leaders. Um, now, speaking of shutting down and destroying, and guys, so what are you, you're going, so wait, are you trying to say that America's under judgment? I'm just saying all signs point to, yep. You know? I mean, we are ripe, you guys. I mean, just see it for what it is. And speaking of shutting down and destroying the economy, Uh, That's another sign, guys, of God's judgment upon a nation. Look at verse 5. 
The waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither, the papyrus reeds uh, by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither. (laughs) That's kind of interesting to say. Everything sown by the river will wither, be driven away, and be no more. The fishermen will also mourn, and those who, and, and those will Oh, pardon me, all those will lament who cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. Underline this all who make wages will be troubled of soul. In that day, guys, Egypt's entire economy revolved around the Nile River, okay? It would overflow its banks on an annual basis. The waters were like a sea. That's the reference. He's talking about the overflowing of the banks of the Nile into the countless millions of acres. Guys, uh, the, the Nile River is over 4,000 miles long. You understand, it's the longest running river in the world. And so when it would overflow its banks into this, uh, it'd make this fertile crescent, right? We call the fertile crescent, it'd be millions of acres of, uh, you know, nutrient-rich silt and all would flood over the farmlands. But if the banks didn't overflow and drought ensued, The results would be devastating to the entire nation, not only agriculturally causing famine, but every industry, everything was built around the Nile. The fishing industry was dependent upon the Nile. Cloth manufacturing dependent upon the flax that would grow uh, from the waters of the Nile. He says, all who make wages will be troubled of soul. Now, many point to the Aswan, Aswan Dam, Uh, which uh, Egypt built in 1970 is kind of a modern fulfillment of this uh, because it stopped the annual flooding and they didn't really, they did this so they could irrigate, but actually they caused way more of a problem than they did solve any problems because it stopped the annual flooding and because of that, it stopped the spreading of the nutrient-rich silt over the fields and there's been saltwater intrusion into the farming areas. The fishing industry essentially has come to nothing as it pertains to the Nile. It caused an ecological nightmare, a total disaster. And God said it was gonna happen. What do you know? It happened. Now, look at verse 11. It says, Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know that the, what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of uh, Noph are deceived and they uh, have also deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her 
and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or the tail, in other words, the highest or the lowest, the palm branch or the bulrush may do. I want you to hear this. God toppled their idolatry, right? They could uh, turn to nothing to help them. He devastated their economy. And in the midst of it all, the leadership acted foolishly, making decisions from incompetency. Now, does this sound familiar? He not only gave them cruel, oppressive leaders, he surrounded those leaders with foolish counselors, with warped, distorted, perverse perspectives. He says, where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. You know what that means? It means that if you want true wisdom, it's found in the word of God. It's found in knowing what the Lord has purposed. If they're truly wise, let them tell you what the Lord has purposed. That's what he's saying. True wisdom isn't in knowing all kinds of facts, having all kinds of clever strategies. People, listen to me, people can be incredibly intelligent and still be incredibly intelligent fools, okay? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Guys, wisdom is rooted in the fear of God. That's where it begins, okay? You can get a lot of advice from a lot of sources and most of it is not good. In fact, a lot of it can be counterproductive and destructive towards your life. That's why it's so critical that you get your counsel from the right resource. What's that? It's the word of God, okay? The Bible says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates, in his word, he meditates day and night. He, the one who does this, the one who not only gets into God's word, but lets God's word get into him, that person shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its seed whose leaf shall not wither and whatever he does shall prosper. Listen, if you're making your life decisions based upon what people think, uh, popular opinion, as opposed to what God's word says, I'm just telling you, you're destined for disaster. Find your resource, your recourse, your counsel in the word of God. Now, in verse 16, in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid in himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which he has determined against it. Guys, uh, 
it's pretty incredible to say that Judah would be a terror to Egypt. I don't know if you understand the gravity of that statement. How many thousands of years uh, was Judah submissively in the shadow of the nation of Egypt? You know what I'm talking about? But today that is not the case, is it? I'm, listen, if Egypt and Israel were to break out in war today, you better put your money on the nation of Israel, okay? Uh, they are a terror to Egypt. Now, one of the things that God is demonstrating to Egypt and setting them up like this and, and showing them all of this is to demonstrate uh, that, uh, you know, in all of this, whether they're a, a superpower or not, they really have no control over their future, okay? God is the one who is in control. Now, that's not a bad thing. In fact, it's a very good thing for people to recognize, to realize, to come to that place of humility and to recognize their own inability to save themselves and submit themselves to God. Uh, you know, perhaps you've known people and they've been really going through it. They're reeling. They've been devastated. Maybe they're disoriented. They're just kind of spinning. But now, guess what? They're ripe for deliverance. Does that make sense? They've been devastated. They're disoriented. Now they're ripe for deliverance. And this is the heart of God, right? He wants to deliver us. Look at verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts, and one will be called the city of destruction. Now, the phrase uh, in that day points us to the future, doesn't it? We've talked about this before. Now, I believe that when we cross into verse 18 that um, Isaiah has just sort of telescoped us. He's just propelled us prophetically in all the way up into the millennial reign of Christ. When he speaks of the language of Canaan, of course, that would be Hebrew, right? This was the promised land. The, the, the land that he gave to Israel was the land of Canaan. Now, it's not saying that all of Egypt will uh, speak only Hebrew, but he's saying that um, it will be a common language in the nation. This reference to five cities, it just kind of, it seems to point, at least according to my understanding, that it's just going to be uh, a common language in the nation in general. The idea is, you know, it'll be like this all over the place in Egypt. They'll swear by the name of the Lord of hosts. In other words, a day is coming when Egypt will not be an idolatrous nation. Uh, the day is coming when Egypt will not be an Islamic nation. But the day is coming when they will follow the one true living God and they'll turn to Jesus Christ. Now, this mention of the city of destruction, probably a mistranslation, uh, better translated city of the sun. Now, the city of the sun was a, um, and if you have a footnote in your Bible, it might say that for you, but it was one of the major uh, capital cities of ancient Egypt, uh, Heliopolis, if I say it right, city of the sun. Today, it is merged with Cairo, okay? But uh, be that as it may, in verse 19, it says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. And it will be for a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors, and he will send them a savior, underline it, a mighty one, and he will deliver them. And then the Lord will be known to Egypt 
And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. And the Lord, underline this, will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. And they will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and heal them. Family, I am so glad that God loves us enough to strike us that he might heal us. Now that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? But essentially what that means is that he will reduce our lives to nothing, if that's what it takes, that we might cry out to him because of the oppression, because of the misery, whatever the case may be, and then he sends us a savior a mighty one, and he delivers us. Now, we place a lot of weight in this life, and that's okay. It's all we know. But we need to understand that God is way more concerned with our eternal well-being than he is our temporal or temporary well-being. And because God loves you, he's willing to bring you low in this life that you might cry out to him that he might give you eternal life. Amen? Does that make sense to you? And I love how this passage emphasizes the greatness of the Savior. Because guys, we need a great Savior, don't we? I mean, a deliverer who is mighty to save. Why? Because, listen, uh, my great sin demands a great Savior. Listen, I cannot, no average, ordinary, run-of-the-mill kind of Savior would do. Man, I needed a mighty one, one who has conquered sin and death and delivered us, even Jesus Christ the righteous, praise God. Now, uh, there has been nuances of this fulfilled in Egypt's history. When times when they were serving kind of nationally, they were uh, uh, you know, serving the Lord and all. But again, ultimately, we're looking into the millennial reign of Christ here. It, we, I love how the Bible even gives us details. It says, look, there will be a pillar at the border of Egypt that's gonna testify to the fact that they're a nation that honors the Lord. And there's gonna be an altar in the midst or in the center there uh, of Egypt uh, that where they will offer memorial sacrifices. People wonder, well, why would they do sacrifices in the millennial reign? Well, they won't be because you need your sin covered. You've already been cleansed by Jesus Christ. So the, the sacrifices under the old covenant looked forward to Christ. In the millennial kingdom, they'll look back to honor the work of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, and so they'll be doing this and God will bring healing and hope to Egypt. Now, we talk about how God will allow those difficult days so that we might come to him, that we might cry out to him because that's his desire, that's his heart, that none would perish but that all would come to repentance and he loves us so much that he'll disrupt our lives temporarily that he might give us life eternally and we thank God for that, don't we? Having said that, even as believers, there are times that God will allow uh, difficult days in our lives. And I'm not saying that every instance that that happens, it's because there's something amiss in your life or sin in your life or you've drifted from him or you've elevated something in your heart and your life that you shouldn't. Uh, you know, sometimes the enemy oppresses you because things are right in your life. But I always think, if you'll hear me on this, I think that it's good 
to take inventory. When things are kind of spinning out of control, when things are in that place of devastation or you know things are just coming undone in our lives, it's good to take inventory and just ask the Lord. You know, search me, O God. Test me and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You understand what I'm saying? Lord, is there something uh, in my life? Help me take inventory, point it out to me. Something that needs dealt with, something that needs repented of, something that needs removed, something I've been reluctant or unwilling to deal with, God. You see. Uh, If so, God would have us, if he shows something to you, if he highlights something for you, well, then it is your responsibility before him to repent of that, to return to him that he might heal you. You see, that he might might restore you. That's his desire, to reconcile us. And I just thank God that he loves us so much, you know. Now, uh, in verse 23, in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. And in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, underline it, my inheritance. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an incredible prophecy. I don't know. I mean, listen, think of all the tension in the Middle East today. Ancient Assyria, if you're not aware, is located in modern-day Iraq, okay? So can you envision Egypt, Iraq, and Israel all trading, traveling together, running around, doing business like the three amigos? But God says it's gonna happen. You know, we're looking here at an amazing work of redemption. And it shows us that it's always been the heart of God. Even Isaiah prophesying 700 years plus prior to Christ coming to the earth, it's always been the heart of God to extend salvation to all the nations. He desires all men everywhere to repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. And the Prince of Peace will bring peace upon the earth. I'm telling you, True peace is not found in a place or a program. It's not in prosperity. It's not in poverty. Some people think they've got to get rid of everything and and live in poverty. Other people think they need to acquire everything and live in prosperity. Then I'll have peace. Some think they'll find it in a program, whatever the case may be. Or maybe it's in uh, Bora Bora. There's, There's Surely there's peace there. You know what I'm saying? But no, it's not found in any place. It's not found in any program. It's found in a person. And the person is Jesus Christ. God calls Egypt my people. He calls Assyria the work of my hands. But who is Israel? Did you see it? My inheritance. Every now and then you'll hear of an amazing inheritance, you know, that comes along, that's radically enriched someone's life. And people get excited when you start talking about inheritance, you know. But you know what God gets excited about? You know what his inheritance is? It's you. 
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul calls you the riches of the glory of his inheritance. I just want you to let that bless your socks off today. Because God's looking forward to receiving you, his inheritance, you see. Now, quickly, guys, you've done well. You're still with me. We're going to hit chapter 20. It won't take us too long, okay? Give me five, six minutes here. Verse 1. In the year that Tartan, or Tartan, not Tarzan, but Tartan, came, I don't know why I'd say that stuff, I don't want to do that. <laughs> you know, I try to t- I've t- tried to teach my kids something that I should, well, you know, just because it comes up here doesn't mean it has to come out there, you know what I mean? I just do dumb stuff like that, I'm sorry. Came to Ashdod when Sargon, not Sauron, you Lord of the Rings fans, you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Tarzan and Sauron. I don't know why am I doing this. I just rebuked myself. The king of Assyria sent him, and he fought against Ashdod and took it. Or Saruman, that was his name, right? I don't remember. At the same time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body and take your sandals off your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot. Okay, to be brief, Ashdod uh, was not an Egyptian city. Uh, it was not a Syrian city. It was not a Moabite city. It was a Philistine city. Okay, And God used them as an object lesson for Israel. Now we know exactly when this happened because secular history records it well. It was in 711 BC. That was when Assyria conquered or uh, you know, uh, overcame, took into captivity uh, this Philistine stronghold of a city. Assyria came and took them captive. Now, when this happened, God told Isaiah, take off your sackcloth and walk naked before the people. Now, you shouldn't think of complete nudity, okay? Uh, But just simply no outer garment. Uh, They had this under, almost like a nightshirt that they would wear. Today, it would be kind of like walking around in your underwear, okay? Um, uh, Not completely morally unacceptable, but certainly strange in public, right? One of those things where you'd be like uncomfortable to be around. This dude's walking around in his underwear. I don't want to, you know, I mean, this is weird. What's he trying to say here? What's going on? Now, as for the sackcloth, um, sackcloth was basically, uh, in the ancient world, it was like a camel's hide that was taken and turned inward so that the actual, the lining was outside and the fur or the hair was like bristles, it was very rough, would be turned to the inside against the skin toward the body. And it was like just a very uncomfortable and it was common uh, for prophets to uh, have this as an attire. It was like a sign of mourning. It was a sign of affliction, okay? This is what sackcloth... But God says, Isaiah, I want you to take that off, and I want you to walk around Jerusalem essentially naked. And he did. And God, but the point was not nakedness. Believe me when I tell you there was nothing sexy to be, like this was not like strolling in my, I'm too sexy for my, you know, whatever, rolling around in his underwear. Okay, that was not, that was not the thing. The point was this abject poverty destitution, total humiliation as an illustration to the nation. The truth is, as we'll see, when people were stripped naked, uh, this usually happened when they were taken 
into captivity. They were just humiliated, uh, they were stripped, and they were led away, okay? So he says, I need you to take off that outer garment and just walk around. I need you to, like, this is an object lesson, okay? Which was quite common for God to do with the prophets. He would have them do, like, these really weird things uh, so that people could could see uh, objectively what was going to take place. It kind of resonate in them in a different way. Now look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years for a sign and a wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. So are you saying that Isaiah dressed like a POW, like a prisoner of war, for three straight years? Maybe. It's also possible, it's also plausible, uh, not necessarily. It could be that what he did was to uh, walk around the city of Jerusalem maybe once or twice, you know, in the course of a day uh, in this fashion for three years. So like every day he would take off his sackcloth, he would walk around Jerusalem and this and that. But the tangible warning to Judah was, don't align yourself with Egypt or Ethiopia against Assyria. Remember we talked about last week when the Egyptians were sending delegates to Judah saying, do you want to align with us and all of that and send back swiftly so that we know? Well, he's saying, don't do that because they are going to be taken captive and led off in shame. Now the point for you and me take home that we need to see as we begin to wrap up and wind down is that the word of God for Isaiah, the word of God would be active in his life. Okay. Quick question. Can people see God's word on display active in your life? Now, I'm not suggesting that you take off your clothes, you walk around in your underwear. Uh, But are there tangible elements that set you apart? Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, Guys, it's one thing to give people the right words, and that's a good thing. But it's another thing to show people the right way. One thing to give the right words, words, to say the right words. Another thing to show the right way, to be a doer of the word of God. People should see Jesus in our lives. And Isaiah was willing to do whatever it took so that people would get the message. You and me, we need to be willing to do whatever it takes that people might understand the message of the word of God and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't know, pastor, people might think I'm a fool. You know, they might look at me like I'm crazy or something like that. Listen, I doubt that Isaiah looked like Mr. Cool walking around. You know, he didn't care. And neither should we. And let me leave you with this. I'm so glad that Jesus was willing to suffer humiliation, to suffer shame for my sake. I guess the question I need to consider is, am I willing to be counted as a fool for his sake? Think about that. Now, verse five, then they shall be afraid and ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, 
you know, hoping that Ethiopia, Ethiopia would align with them and help deliver them. They will be ashamed of Ethiopia, their expectation, and Egypt, their glory. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria. How shall we escape? Oh, yeah, we're closing. Are you, are you my closer? Huh? Joseph? Sorry. Sorry. Guys, let me just say this and then we'll, we'll be done. Look at verse, let's just look at verse six again. And the inhabitant of this territory will say in that day, surely such is our expectation wherever we flee for help to be delivered from the king of Assyria and how shall we escape? What I'm saying is this, whenever you place your hope, your expectation in anything or anyone other than the Lord, you'll only be let down, you'll be disappointed, you'll be left in dismay. So what's the take home? Place your hope, your glory, your expectation in the Lord. Your deliverance, your assurance, your salvation, it's in him alone. And having begun a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day that you see him face to face and then you will be like him for you will see him as he is. Praise God. All right, God, we're grateful for your word, your faithfulness to redirect our focus again and again so that we might place our hope and our trust in you alone. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are our deliverer. You are mighty to save. And we give you glory. And I pray, God, that we would be doers of your word, that we would be active and intentional, that your word, Lord, as you have said, that our light would so shine that people might see our good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And guys, while we're just sitting here and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just, listen, where sin abounds, I think that's one thing that's a, kind of a, another like a aerial view, kind of a take home from a chapter 19 where, you know, the, he's talking about the sin of Egypt, the shame of Egypt and all of this. And then he talks about the savior of Egypt. You know what that means? That where sin abounds, grace abounds still more. Jesus is mighty to save and he breaks chains and he sets captives free and he gifts those who believe on him with eternal life. Turn from your sin and trust in him today. Maybe you all know the Lord. Maybe you all are in love with the Lord. That's wonderful. But if you're here and you don't know Christ and today he's knocking on the door of your heart, I'm encouraging you today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. I, I was sharing with that same fella that I was telling you about yesterday. You know, and I've shared this with you before, the greatest, one of the greatest dangers, deceptions that the devil has brought upon this world, he's been so effective at getting people to buy in on it. It's not that there's no heaven, it's not that there's no hell, it's that there's no hurry. You can just, hey man, you can take care of it later. Well, we're not always guaranteed later. And so today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so 
if God is calling you, if this is resonating in you, if you need to give your heart, your life to Jesus Christ, I want to pray for you. And so I don't care how old you are, how young you are, where you've been, what you've done, first time here, been here often, doesn't matter. What matters is, is Jesus Christ, the Lord of your life. Have you turned from your sin? Have you trusted in him? If not, let's do that today. I just want to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. And if I, if I see your hand, I'll say, you know, God bless you. You can put it back down. But I just want to give you a moment to say, you know what? Today is a day of salvation for me. So don't hesitate. This is your moment. Anybody I can pray for in that, in that specific way today? Okay. Well, Father, we're just grateful uh, for the truth of your word. And as I uh, prayed when we began, I would, I would echo the same, the same request now, that we would be doers, that we would respond appropriately. Uh, Lord, that we would live for you intentionally that you might be glorified in our lives. Give us boldness, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys. Why don't we rise to our feet? You know, part of that process is, is incumbent upon you. God has called you to be that light in a dark world. And... Uh, I just want to encourage you to shake off that sense of intimidation or hesitation or reservation. God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. Well, I don't know, uh, you know, everything in the Bible. Well, you, well, just share what you do know. You don't have to know everything. I don't know everything. None of us know everything. God knows everything. The rest of us are going to fall radically short. If you know this, I was blind, but now I see, you're equipped. Just tell them who opened your eyes. You're ready to go. They ask you a question. They try to send you a zinger. They say, well, what about this? And they try to give you some weird, dumb thing. And you don't know the answer? You just say, well, you know what? That's a great question. I'm not sure. I'll look into that and get back to you. You know, I don't know everything. All I know is that God loves you, that Christ came, that he died for you, that he rose again the third day, and if you'll believe on him, you'll have everlasting life. That's the message that I'm to give, that I'm to send, and I just want to share that with you. Because I'm telling you guys, the Bible says that God has placed eternity in the heart of every man. They know. They will deny it to your face. They will tell you they don't believe in God, all the things. But I'm telling you, when they lay down at night and the hounds of heaven start getting on their trail, they're thinking, why am I here? What's the point? There's got to be more. Because God is faithful. And he's not wanting. He's, and so you know that. So you just speak to them in boldness. I don't care if they ridicule you. They say it's dumb. They don't believe it. All the stuff. God's word will never return void. And it will always accomplish the purpose for which it's sent forth. So you just be the light he's called you to be. You leave the results up to him. It's not up to you to save them, to convert them, to, to talk them into something. It's just up to you to share the truth. And let the chips fall where they may. Then you can wash your hands. You're clean. You know, I've done my part. It's up to you. Believe it or don't believe it. But like I told you today, the truth will, will have its weight. It will have its way, whether you believe it or not. And so God has called us to be the watchman on the wall and to share the reality. Yes, judgment is coming, but grace is available. 
And it's by grace that we're saved through faith. And that, not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any of us should boast. So uh, may the Lord bless you and be with you, and may he pour his spirit out upon you, and may his goodness and mercy follow you, and may he lift up his countenance upon you and, and, and cause his face to shine upon you. May he give you his peace. If you have any need for prayer, we're just going to linger down here for a few minutes and and just avail ourselves, whatever your need may be. We will have your, you know, sack lunches or Subway or whatever you have in view, and then we'll all kind of caravan out up to the zoo in Springfield. If you want to join us, that'd be wonderful. Uh, But let's pray, and then I'll release you. Father, once again, thank you, Lord, just for loving us, for, uh, you know, speaking to us, God, for uh, sending Jesus to save us. Man, Lord, wake us up. Renew that urgency in our heart uh, to get the gospel out, to have that come and see mentality, to open the door that people might see you and want to talk about you and just, uh, Lord, it's our desire they come to know you. And we pray that you use us, Lord. We want to be impactful in this community. Uh, Lord, we want to be a light wherever you would want us to to be and so lord as we leave here now and we go our ways but we pray you have your way in our hearts for we ask it in jesus name amen amen god bless you guys have a wonderful sunday oh and if you need to take care of your nine and dine or whatever russ is out in the front right now and uh he can take care of that for you all right